This show is made possible by NCSEA's members. And if you'd like to become a member of North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association, visit us online at energync.org. Hello and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Ben Stockdale. On today's show, we're getting down in the weeds with two concepts that have taken center stage in North Carolina's clean energy conversation. I'm talking about multi-year rate plans and securitization, both of which comprise Senate Bill 559, the controversial Duke Energy rate hike bill that just passed the NC Senate. I'll be talking with NCSEA's general counsel, Peter Ledford. But first, let's start with our policy update. The past few weeks of the North Carolina General Assembly have been a whirlwind leading up to the May 9th crossover deadline, at which point legislation must pass through one chamber to the other to remain eligible for consideration. The flurry of activity marked some wins and losses for North Carolina's clean energy industry. Here are some of the key bills that passed. House Bill 329 allows electric vehicle charging stations to sell electricity directly to EV drivers, as opposed to selling based on time of use. This is great legislation for EV charging businesses and drivers, and will hopefully expand EV charging business models in our state. House Bill 330 increases energy reduction goals in state-owned buildings from 30% to 40% and is anticipated to avoid nearly $1.1 billion in utility costs between 2018 and 2025 and net North Carolina taxpayers over $250 million in savings. This is another great bill that builds on years of successful energy efficiency measures. Now, House Bill 479 commissions a study to assess the decommissioning of utility-scale solar facilities. And Senate Bill 559, which we are getting down in the weeds with on this episode, passed as well. Spoiler alert, this is not good legislation for North Carolina. Just as important as what did pass is what did not pass, and here are some of the key bills that did not make the crossover deadline. Now keep in mind that this does not necessarily mean that the provisions in the bills won't make it into law, but they will have to find a vehicle other than standalone legislation. House Bill 541 reduces solar property tax abatement from 80% to 60%, which would effectively double the property tax for utility-scale solar projects. House Bill 543 and House Bill 726 both deal with the Renewable Energy Portfolio Standards, or REPS laws, and House Bill 543 would eliminate the standard for 2020, and 726 would repeal the program entirely. The REPS laws have been a huge reason why North Carolina is second in the nation in solar, so we are glad to see that these bills did not see the light of day. 
Senate Bill 446 increases the EV fee from $130 to $230. It also creates a $115 fee for plug-in hybrids. And this is all despite a report from the NC Clean Tech Center demonstrating that EV drivers are already paying more than their fair share of the gas tax. Senate Bill 510 defines energy storage, includes energy storage in the 80% solar tax abatement, and also allows standalone storage to qualify for this tax abatement as well. House Bill 889 reduces the value of the solar rebate in order to double the number of potential recipients while maintaining the overall cost of the program. And House Bill 750 prohibits HOAs or binding covenants from restricting solar on rooftops. Lastly, I am happy to report that Senator Harry Brown's wind ban, Senate Bill 377, did not pass through the Senate. This bad bill would ban all new wind energy projects in, either wholly or in part, over 60 counties in North Carolina. To see all the bills NCSDA has been tracking and to receive our comprehensive weekly policy update, which I write, you can become an NCSEA member by visiting us online at energync.org. The Squeaky Squeaky Clean Energy Energy Podcast. On April 2nd, Senators Bill Rabin, a Republican from Southeast North Carolina, Ralph Heiss, a Republican from the Mountains, and Dan Blue, a Democrat from Raleigh, filed Senate Bill 559, which proposes the biggest change in how electricity rates are set in nearly a century. The bill is split into two parts, and the first part introduces a mechanism called securitization. Peter Ledford, General Counsel at NCSEA, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ben. Let's jump right into this. Securitization is a big topic right now. It's coming up in other states. Peter, what is securitization? So before we dive into securitization, it's important to understand how utilities recoup the money that they spend during their normal course of business. That's generally done through rates, and encompassed in those rates is a rate of return or a return on equity specifically for interest that is paid on top of the expenses to allow the utility to earn a profit. The rate of return, specifically in North Carolina, the return on equity right now for Duke's utilities is set at 9.9%. And that's set by the North Carolina Utilities Commission. 9.9% is fairly generous when compared to certain other options. What securitization does is instead of the typical recovery through that return on equity, the costs associated with a bad asset are recouped via a bond. The utility will go out on the market. They will get a bond at the current bond interest rates, which are around 3% or so, and they will recover the bond costs through rates instead of the capital costs plus that return on equity. So in essence, what securitization does is it saves ratepayers that difference between the current 9.9% return on equity and the 3 or so percent bond interest rate. So there's a savings of about 7% worth of interest or return on equity that's generated for consumers. Okay, so securitization is a pretty handy mechanism, yeah? 
Securitization is a pretty handy mechanism, and it's been used in other states with a lot of benefits to ratepayers. In Senate Bill 559, Duke is proposing to use it for storm recovery costs. North Carolina has been hit by a number of hurricanes and winter storms over the past few years, and Duke has incurred hundreds of millions of dollars worth of costs associated for cleaning up and repairing from those events. That's stuff that will never earn a profit for the utility because it's just storm recovery. It's not new capital assets. So securitization would allow the utility to go out on the bond market, save that difference in money instead of having to do the return on equity. It's been used in other states for things like storm recovery costs. It's also been authorized in other states for the early retirement of coal generation that's no longer economically competitive with clean energy resources. It's been talked about as a mechanism to retire or deal with nuclear generation that that never actually came online or that is no longer cost effective. At what point would an asset become uneconomic? Generally, it's like anything else. In the utility industry, an asset becomes uneconomic when it costs more to operate than the power that it produces. So in North Carolina, Duke's coal fleet is largely uneconomic. The amount that they have to spend on the fuel, on the operations and maintenance, on staff and everything else to generate a megawatt hour of electricity from coal actually costs more than that megawatt hour is worth on the open market. So that's an asset that is uneconomic. Why does North Carolina need securitization and why do you think that it was included in this bill? So securitization is a good thing to have in the toolbox. Is it necessary? Probably not. But it's a way to save consumers money, and it's a way to give the utilities an incentive to retire uneconomic assets, particularly coal, and replace them with cleaner generation from renewable energy resources. Who would securitization be good for? Securitization ultimately is good for pretty much everybody. The ratepayers are paying lower amounts for assets that they would be paying for anyways because they're saving on interest. The utility and its shareholders are in a good position because they get to recover the costs immediately through the bond market as opposed to over a period of 20 to 60 years depending on the asset. So ultimately securitization is a good option for everybody. And is it normal to have something like securitization come out of the legislature of a state, or is this something that typically a utilities commission would handle internally? Across the country, it's been handled in different manners. In some places, it's been the state public utilities commission. In some places, it's been the legislation. So I don't think that there's a solid pattern of it. That said, our Utilities Commission is a creature of the General Assembly. It was created by the General Assembly. It answers to the General Assembly. And the way our commission has typically been run over the past hundred years, there's a lot of deference to the policy decisions made by the General Assembly. So it's not shocking that the North Carolina Utilities Commission would wait for some sort of explicit authorization from the General Assembly before allowing securitization. That said, the North Carolina Utilities Commission does have very broad authority, probably could do it without specific authorization, but now that this legislation is out there, I'm not sure that we'll see them use it unless 559 or some subsequent piece of legislation becomes law.
we've covered part one of Senate Bill 559, let's shift over to part two, where the legislation takes a turn for the worst. Part two of Senate Bill 559 is where multi-year rate plans come into play. Manufacturers oppose them, businesses oppose them, the AARP opposes them, and over 50 North Carolina businesses just signed a letter to members of the Senate asking them to strike the provision or add ratepayer protections. The only company that supports this legislation, you guessed it, Duke Energy. Peter, what are these proposed multi-year rate plans? Multi-year rate plans are a total departure from how utility rates are typically set in traditional states like North Carolina. The way rates are set in North Carolina, the Utilities Commission looks at a snapshot of the previous year of the expenses incurred by the utility and makes adjustments and then sets rates based on that previous test year. This is always backwards looking. Anything that the utility seeks to have to recover costs for must be used and useful, and their costs are examined by the commission to determine if they were reasonably and prudently incurred. So those are two key concepts, used and useful, in the ground, providing electricity, transmitting electricity, something like that, and reasonable and prudent. The decision makes sense when the utility made the decision. Was the cost reasonable? Did the utility do everything that it could to minimize costs? So those are the two key concepts. What multi-year rate plans do is instead of looking backwards, they actually look forwards. So Senate Bill 559 would authorize up to five years of multi-year rate plans. So for five forward-looking years, the Utilities Commission could actually authorize rate increases for costs that the utility has not yet incurred but plans to incur during that time period. So it completely does away with the used and useful paradigm that we've had in place for a century, and it also makes major changes to the reasonable and prudent standard. So there's no way for the Utilities Commission to actually be forward-looking with reasonable and prudent. Could the utility have negotiated a better price? Was there a new technology that could have done this cheaper? Those are things that the commission's not going to have when it's making a decision about a rate increase. So multi-year rate plans are a pretty big departure from how we have done things in North Carolina for, for over a century now. Was there a stakeholder process leading up to this legislation so there was not a stakeholder process leading up to Senate Bill 559, which is pretty interesting. Two years ago, in the run-up to the passage of House Bill 589, which was the pretty major solar legislation that North Carolina passed in 2017, there was a nine-month-long stakeholder process involving dozens of organizations meeting weekly, if not more frequently, for a period of nine months. That was a very intensive stakeholder process where, where lots of views were expressed, lots of negotiations were had, and ultimately there was a compromise piece of legislation. There was none of that in the run-up to Senate Bill 559. Duke has at times said there was a stakeholder process, but hasn't identified what that process was, which is pretty interesting because there are a number of independent, smaller stakeholder processes that are going on right now, but none of them have touched on things like multi-year rate plans. Currently, there's a stakeholder process going on around Duke's grid modernization plans, but cost recovery is not something that Duke's been willing to discuss there. There have been stakeholder processes surrounding the interconnection standard for how solar and other non-utility generation connects to the grid that's owned by the utility. 
There's a lot of stakeholder processes, but none of these deal with cost recovery, multi-year rate plans, or anything like that. have other states dealt with multi-year rate plans? Has it worked in other states? So multi-year rate plans have a very mixed history in other states. The prime example here in North Carolina of another state to look at is Virginia, just north of the border. A few years ago, uh, the Virginia legislature enacted what it called a rate freeze, when it in essence was just a multi-year rate plan for Dominion Energy, which is Virginia's largest utility. What happened was the utility's rates were frozen, and for a period of years, that utility was actually over-recovering from customers. The exact amount that was over-recovered is still subject to dispute, and there are open proceedings before the Virginia Public Utilities Commission about how to deal with that over-recovery. Ultimately, what's happening in Virginia is Dominion will reinvest some of the over-recovery into assets that will provide benefits to ratepayers and is going to refund some of that over-recovery to ratepayers. But what we saw was in a period of just a couple of years, the utility over-recovered hundreds of millions of dollars from Virginia ratepayers with effectively no oversight from the State Corporation Commission in Virginia. In places where multi-year rate plans have been more successful, they're generally tied to other sorts of regulatory reforms. A common one is called performance-based regulation, where depending on a series of performance metrics that are set by a public utilities commission, the utility that is subject to a multi-year rate plan can actually have its rate of return vary. If the utility does a good job with customer service, with interconnecting solar, with any other performance metric, they can actually get a slightly higher rate of return. If the utility does a poor job on those metrics, then the rate of return decreases. So we've seen multi-year rate plans tied with performance-based regulation in other states, but that is not a part of Senate Bill 559 in North Carolina. There has been discussion especially on the Senate floor when debating the bill about whether this is a part of Senate Bill 559. Certain legislators say that it is allowable. However, it is not explicitly granted in Senate Bill 559. Senate Bill 559 does not explicitly grant the Utilities Commission the ability to do performance-based regulation, which, if you remember a minute ago when we were discussing securitization, I said that the Commission often doesn't do things without an explicit grant of authority from the General Assembly. So the fact that Senate Bill 559 doesn't include an explicit grant to the commission that they can do performance-based regulation is concerning to NCSEA about whether the commission would actually do that. A lot of businesses, organizations, and groups have come out in opposition to Senate Bill 559. Why would a business or manufacturer oppose Senate Bill 559? So I think there's two main reasons why any sort of ratepayer would oppose Senate Bill 559, and specifically the multi-year rate plans provision. The first is uncertainty. You never know what's going to happen to rates. So the Utilities Commission during a rate case is going to be looking out into the future and is going to be granting an increase. And so you're going to be faced with these multi-year increases that you know are coming, 
but you don't entirely know whether your service is going to improve or anything else that's associated with it. You're definitely going to be paying more, but what's the benefit to you? And the second reason why these organizations or any ratepayer would be likely to oppose multi-year rate plans is that how are you ensured that the utility is making the best decisions for you as a ratepayer? Under the current paradigm, we have the reasonable and prudent standard. So the Utilities Commission is investigating any sort of investment that's made to make sure that it was in the best interest of ratepayers. But when you're looking forward, you don't know exactly what the circumstances are going to be. The commission's going to be authorizing the utility to spend X million dollars. But is that the least cost option that's available? Is that the most reasonable and prudent option that's available? Who knows what technologies are going to be on the market four or five years from now? We've seen projections for decrease in costs for energy storage, but even the best analyst can't tell you exactly what a megawatt hour of storage is going to cost in 2024. So that's why the reasonable and prudent standard is so important. And with that going out the window and the the multi-year rate plans that are in Senate Bill 559, that certainly would be concerning to any rate payer, especially when you look at manufacturers and other large businesses that spend millions of dollars a year on electricity. The letter signed by more than 50 businesses offered some remedies that could be included in the bill to make it more palatable. Peter, is there anything that could be included in this legislation to make it worthwhile? So I think the easiest thing to do to make this worthwhile is to take a step back and study the issue. I think it's interesting that for once, NCSEA and Duke are both in agreement that the current model does not work for North Carolina's ratepayers or for its utilities. So I think this is someplace where we have different visions for the future, but we agree that the current system needs to be reformed. Duke Energy has put its vision for the future on the table, and that's multi-year rate plans. That makes sense. If you're trying to guarantee your investors some incredibly high dividends and to drive stock performance, multi-year rate plans look great for your investors, but they don't look so great for your rate payers. Given the time constraints of the current legislative session and given the enormity of the issues before us, the easiest thing to do would be to take a step back to sit down to discuss what would be best for all North Carolinians. And that includes the utility, the ratepayers, the clean energy industry, and anyone who has an interest in energy in North Carolina. Unfortunately, it's not clear whether that's going to happen. So these proposed multi-year rate plans also include a provision called ROE banding. Peter, what is ROE banding? Sure. So I discussed earlier that the utility Duke right now earns 9.9% return on equity. What that is, is every year they get a 9.9% interest rate, basically on the equity that they have invested. The higher that interest rate goes, the more money for their shareholders. The lower it goes, the less money for their shareholders. ROE banding would basically allow the utility, instead of having a set 9.9%, return on equity to operate within a band. So if they're able to drive their costs down, their ROE would go 
up. There's an inverse relationship there. And as long as they don't go above a certain limit, then they would not be subject to any sort of rate case or recovery or reimbursement clawback to their rate payers. Everyone should be concerned with that. NCSEA crunched the numbers, a 1% increase in Duke's return on equity from 9.9% to 10.9% results in a $112.5 million windfall per year for Duke's shareholders. That's a lot of money that would be going into the pockets of Duke's shareholders instead of staying with ratepayers. Now, that said, the effectiveness of the ROE banding provision in Senate Bill 559 is questionable at best. What happens if the utility exceeds the ROE band? Well, 559 doesn't say. There's no clawback provision. There's no monthly or quarterly reporting requirements from the utility. So there's a lot of consumer protections that are missing from the ROE banding provision that I think would give comfort to certain ratepayers that their interests would be looked out for. The flip side of that is there's also the ability for the Utilities Commission to call a new rate case whenever they want to, regardless of where in the ROE band the utility is operating. So all in all, the ROE banding provision that's in Senate Bill 559, I think, reflects the rushed and hurried approach to getting 559 put together and run through the Senate. Whether this even works for the utility, I think, is in question, but certainly as it's written, it doesn't work for ratepayers. Okay, we talked multi-year rate plans, we talked securitization, we got down in the weeds. Peter Ledford, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. And there you have it, folks, the first episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast, delivering the latest in clean energy right to your ears. Got questions? Shoot me an email at benstockdale at energync.org. Stay tuned for our next episode as we continue to explore the most pressing issues for North Carolina's clean energy economy.